Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today what we're going to talk about, and it's related to the whole Christian, I mean, the critical race theory and everything else, we're going to talk about education and the battle for your children. Um, And we're going to just say right off the bat, um, this will irritate some. And and we know that, um, but we haven't shied away from that yet. And we're still in our undisclosed location, so you can't firebomb us. Um, <laughs> but, but really, we are going to irritate some of you, um, and we know that. But we're not trying to irritate you. Right, what right. we are trying to do is provoke some thought. And this is something I have actually addressed personally as a pastor for nigh on 25 years almost. And you, you've had to deal with it now as a, a younger man and you have small children and so all all these things are something very personal to you not to mention you're now also shepherding a flock of people and of your own church and and you realize yeah it's a real issue it it really is an issue so we've dealt already uh, with the whole blm critical race theory social justice world over the last several podcasts we hope they've challenged you and been helpful uh, in that time, we've also had to deal with riots in our own city and the expectation of more as soon as decisions will be rendered about the police officer who shot Jacob Blake. That's coming soon. Yeah. Um, not to mention the whole Kyle Rittenhouse trial. So we, we know that we will likely see more riots and more protests. So the that's what they call them, and more burnings and everything else. Um, what we have tried to do is diligently give you a biblical framework to uh, to work with uh, as you think through the issues, and we hope in some small way we're, we, we are of help. So what we're going to talk about today is a so-called elephant in the room about this whole racial social justice problem our, our nation is in, and that elephant is called the educational system. Um, We will argue, and we just want to lay our cards up front, we will argue against having children in the public education system, as well as in many private institutions. We're also going to argue that great care needs to be used when considering higher education. Uh, Too many stories of young adults heading off to college and they come back with radical, rebellious ideas that literally just baffle their parents. We didn't raise them that way. Um, And we argue, actually, you did. Um, You just didn't know you were, but you were laying the groundwork that they could come back and be this. And so we will jump right in on this, and we're going to ask you to give us a a careful listen. Again, we're going to excite your emotions, possibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people will be fist bumping, yes, but others are be like, what? You've got to be crazy. So give us a listen. Just that's all. Yep. Yeah, so we'll just, I guess, just jump right in. Um, So our our first premise here is that education is not neutral. Uh, Education is not neutral. So the Bible makes this clear in every area of existence. Um, But this is something we're finding that Christians seem to fail to grasp in in many ways. Blows my mind. Um, 
so Galatians 1.4, just to give you some passages, uh, speaks of the death of Christ rescuing us out of this, listen, present evil age. It's literally the term aeon. Um, so we're, we're in an evil age. Um, and, and, and that that word eon or uh, it at that age is this system that is opposed overtly it, anti yeah it's opposed to god yeah i that, mean it's that simple that, it's that's what we swim in yeah. yeah right um so there's no neutrality there it covers and coats everything and so we would just ask do we grasp this um do we understand that all things are unredeemed um by uh understand that all things unredeemed by christ belong to this age that is defined as evil. Um, Satan is described as the god of this world, or again, this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul, in describing his conversion and mission to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, says that all outside of Christ are under the dominion of Satan and dwell in darkness. So very strong word. Not a lot of neutrality there. I mean, it's pretty yeah, clear. Yeah, and he, he just said that to the king. Right. Saying you're under. <laughs> you're part of that system. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, Romans 3 and verse 9 uh, tells us something that we all know, but again, somehow we, we don't extrapolate it into all parts of our lives necessarily. So it says that all people are under sin. Um, so it's not that we just do sin once in a while. We're, we're under this thing called sin. Um, the idea is that of power and authority, uh, the ruling thought and motive of this age is sin, and apart from Jesus, everyone is under that power. Um, so is it any surprise that Paul tells us then in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, that we are to reject conformity to this age, how by being in the consistent state of transformation of the mind? Um, and why? Well, so that we might be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um and Ephesians 4.23 tells us to be renewed in our minds again. And then Ephesians 5.10 tells us to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So over and over again, uh, we have all these passages declaring there is zero neutrality here. Right, right. And our task is to figure out, okay, is this decision pleasing to the Lord? Is this worldview that I'm taking part in, is it pleasing to the Lord? Is Am I, am I learning? I mean my mind should be in the state of constant change. And we talked about that, how it's kind of cool, even though our theology is pretty well set in the big sense, every time you and I preach, our theology changes ever so slightly because we're, we're expositional to a high degree. We're, we're, we're looking at the text and, and the very words. And as we work that through, it changes, it clarifies some things, it shifts a little bit here. And, um, and that's the norm for every Christian. Every Christian should be in this constant state of greater conformity to the mind of Christ. Would you agree right. with that? Absolutely. And and that's what we're not seeing. Yeah. We're, we're, and and if you're not, you're you are overtly going the other way because of that Romans twelve passage. Both of those verbs are in the passive. So he's saying, don't be conformed. So this is something that's happening. Yeah, to you it's pressing on, you. and it's a present too. It's so yeah. it's this constant state of pushing. So so you don't have to do anything. You have to exist. And what's it doing? It's conforming you more and more into this age. He says, on the contrary, be transformed again, passive in where in your mind, presumably by the word of God, so that now you can discern that which is good, right, and acceptable. All right. So our question then would be to you uh, as a listener is, do you apply your decisions related um, 
do you apply these kinds of passages to your decisions related to education for your children or maybe even yourself? Which is, again, something overtly designed to shape the mind. Yes. That's what education is. Uh, Do you actually grasp it? Do you understand the system at its very core is atheistic and immoral? Do you understand that it is actually under the power of Satan? Do you understand that its very goal and purpose is to take your child's mind and conform it into the image of the age? We keep trying to fight battles that were lost long ago in the minds of the youth, and and we hear things suddenly espoused, and we wonder, where did they come from? But they came from something that they were already buying into three years ago, five years ago, and we're like, it, it just comes to fruit as they get older and they start expressing their will, you know, and that's why so often you see kids go off to college and the kid that comes back after the first semester tattooed and pierced and hair every which way. And, and they're raising their fist in protest. And, and you're like, where did that come from? It came from years of being conformed into a thinking. It didn't happen overnight. Um, instead, what you should ask yourself, why Uh, You should ask yourself why so many of the young people are pushing for these changes. And the point that you're going to find in common with them is usually their education. Add to this the ability for so many differing ideas to affect your children via their phones and their internet. And it's no surprise that a very different worldview is accepted by your child. In fact, just Google alone, how many people still use Google? We refuse, right? DuckDuckGo. Google is just it's, it's, it's got an agenda behind it. It's not neutral. Does, yeah. right. And yet how often does a kid look up euthanasia and then whatever's the first hit on Google, that's what euthanasia is. And it's like all of these are conforming your, your kid's mind and yours to a way of thinking. And so we fool ourselves into thinking that though there are various ideas being pushed in schools, that still somehow their overall purpose is to educate children in the basics of knowledge. So reading, writing, and arithmetic. But that's a lie. It's untrue. Uh, The test scores prove this over and over again. Even after we totally redo time and time again the methodology of testing, they still reveal a shockingly low standard of knowledge because schools aren't interested in conveying raw knowledge. They're actually trying to get you to conform to a thought pattern. So uh, is it Bodhi? Have we agreed? That's what I do. Okay, Vodi Pakam. That's what I do. Um, he says this story. He says, one of our elders taught honors math at one of the best schools in one of the best school districts in Texas. You know, one of those schools people lie and cheat to get their children into so they can get a better education. His advanced geometry class was filled with a bunch of imbeciles. <laughs> um, who could barely do basic arithmetic. And as a result, most of them failed the first major test. You know what happened next? The principal called him into the office and told him to make things right. Check this out. This blew my mind. He says one of the things he was told was to employ a grading technique called square square root times 10. Thus, a student who made a 49 on a test ended up with a 70 in the grade book. For those of you who went to government schools like me, that's the square root of 49 times 10. So it's here's the real number, but we'll play those numbers so that it comes out okay. Um, a lot of schools, did you know a lot of schools have eliminated the F grade? Yeah, they it just it in fact um 
in California, they eliminated, I don't know if they still are doing it or not, but they had eliminated any kind of a grade. Um, you're either passing or needs improvement because they, they felt that it undermined the child's self-esteem if he got a B and their friend got an A. We don't want to harm that self-esteem. So you, you got a bunch of imbeciles, but they feel really, really good about themselves, you know? Hmm. Um, <laughs> how yeah. governmental of them pass yes. or fail. <laughs> um, so ask kids, you want to have fun? It's Christopher Columbus day today, right? Um, ask your kids who, who he was. And it's quite amazing how much hatred will come out against him, showing a complete inability to understand history and the complexity of events or ask them to describe the native Indians life prior to the Europeans coming into North America. Usually it's an idyllic life filled with peace through the truth that the warring, though the truth is that the warring tribes would terrorize the more peaceful ones that, uh, that tribes would fight over lands and that the level of demonic and animistic religious activity defined so much of what they would value. But you won't get that. All you get is a bunch of happy little Indians all living peacefully together. And then we came in and we introduced all kinds of diseases. And then we just took their lands. How, how imperialistic we are. Um, well, it's interesting though, because uh, I think yesterday was Columbus Day. Oh, it was yesterday? And, you yeah, know, they're, right. they're trying to do away with it. And it's like Indigenous Day or something. And I, I knew exactly who on my social media feed would be on message about that. And they did not disappoint why? Because they belong to that system that is shaping their mind and their values in a certain way. Yeah, I, I got some really choice emails and private messages a few years ago from various people when I uh, posted an article in defense of Columbus. And that doesn't mean it's a carte blanche defense. It's just a defense. And um, th these people were not happy with me. And I watched them. And as they've grown in Christ. Their views have changed, which encourages me. But now Kim and I, we actually went to a local school of just a few years ago, like three, four years ago, to show support for a young lady we knew. And she had this small exhibit showing. Uh, so we, we thought we would go and try to be a, an encouragement. Uh, she wasn't a believer. Um, and, and again, we, we wanted to, her to know her pastor loved her. Um, and so we were heartbroken, though, when we watched so many young teens uh, surrounding her and interacting who were obviously transgender or transvestites or homosexual. We know that because they were openly flaunting it. And, and the school willingly had pro-homosexual banners displayed. That's not by accident. That, that's actually there by purpose. And it's, it's the, the water your children are swimming in, whether you know it or not. Yeah. Those shaping forces. Um, well, you know, over the past years, uh, you and I, we've been a bit stunned at first by how much anti-Christian, I don't know, we'll just call it garbage, is flowing out of the mouths of Christians nowadays related to things on government, economics, racism, gender roles, things like that. Um, we're not shocked anymore. No. But a couple of years ago, I mean, when it's it was like, all- Where is this coming? Yeah, Especially from flooding. pastors. Exactly. It's like, what? Yeah. And, and so- we find that, you know, this current generation of pastors in the pulpit, and when I say that, I would say I would say my generation, <laughs> especially of pastors in the pulpits, have drunk deeply from the well of godless men and women. And so it is unsurprising that while we are supposed to keep the gospel central, somehow the gospel never quite reaches into, you know, private convictions on many of the social sins in our nation. 
Um, and the next crop is even more concerning to us. Um, so, so critical race theory and social justice are happily ensconced in, in most seminaries and Christian colleges. I can't even recommend any more no. at all in, in any good conscience, um, which is so saddening to me. Um, but the product is that most will, that most of these seminaries are going to produce is something not quite Christian at all. Um, and, and it is of great concern to us as pastors, as we see the schools now producing wolves rather than shepherds. And so a question that we would ask is, do you understand that anything that is non-Christian and hear this, anything that is non-Christian is by its very nature, anti-Christian. Again, there's, there's no neutrality here. So, so just because, you know, something's not necessarily punching you or your child directly in the face, uh, that does not mean that it's not actively pushing and promoting something that's, that's not God centered or not a God honoring idea or goal. Um, you know, a, a gentle and nice form of atheism is going to suffer the same wrath of God for all of eternity as the harsh genocidal type. Uh, we are long past the days where the presumption was that most students were from Christian homes in the broadest sense of the word and being raised with Judeo-Christian values. And so education is not merely claiming to put the Christian wor worldview on a level playing field with other worldviews, treating them as equal. Education at its highest levels hates the very name of Jesus Christ. And the sad part is that it's not even trying to hide itself anymore, which might be a good thing too. I, I, I'm thankful for it in a weird way, but I think that still a lot of parents truly do think that, well, it's not overtly Christian, but it's, I mean, you can still be a Christian and go to school. And it's like, not if you really want to live out your Christian faith, you're going to, you're going to lose out big time. And many a Christian professor in, uh, in higher education institutions are finding they're losing even their tenure. Tenure. I mean, they they're they're done. You you don't dare. The cancel culture is alive and well in the education system. So that's our first premise. The second premise is that we assume the younger years are more important for development than the older ones. Um, this is an error. Uh, this is a premise that many parents have in their parenting. Um, they think the younger years are the ones that they need to be concerned with than the development of the older ones. Um, so parents who love their children, usually, if you're honest, mostly enjoy them when they're small. Uh, why? Because they're easily managed and they tend toward being cute. Uh, the problems with smaller children can be frustrating to the parent, but they're really minor, right? Uh, they're easily resolved for the most part. What, you're laughing. I'm thinking you got one of your kids. No, well, yeah, you know, Levi. Uh, he, <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, he's a very emotional little guy. Um, and so we'll often repeat to each other, you know, it's a good thing God made babies cute. Yeah. And Lydia goes, yeah, it's a good thing he doesn't look like a potato. <laughs> between that and his attitude sometimes, it's like, boy. Well, I've I mean, we've, we've watched... Um, our grandchildren, we watched two of them just have a meltdown because one was playing with a stick, a <laughs> stick. <laughs> and there were other sticks out there. And the other one wanted the stick. And so took the stick and they both just lost it as a tug of war developed. And I'm like, oh my goodness, kids, get over. And fortunately, their, their father uh, basically not only dispensed discipline, but had them just say, you're going to both sit with me now. You, you've lost your privilege. I'm like, good for you, buddy. Um, but one thing uh, we teach about parenting here is that by five, 
you should actually have your child consistently showing you respect and obedience. I mean, that should be the norm for any five-year-old that you have. Uh, They're not children uh, who should be given to interruptions, uh, tantrums, or rebelliousness in the slightest. Um, You should, by now, at five, have taught your child to sit still in church for an extended length of time. And to accept that their way really doesn't matter. Um, we don't. We find many parents not doing that, but that's what we're always trying to teach, both in word and deed. Um, now, these years are normally what you would call the preschool years, uh, but then you watch parents who have enjoyed this time and invested a lot of time and effort uh, in the one to five or zero to five years. Um, they're now you find out they're counting down the days when they can see their, ch- their children go off to school. Why? So they can get back to what they really want to do. Um, and when that happens, you see how they really view children. They're like, man, it's just so nice to have the house to myself again. It's like, that's a sad commentary on your understanding of what a child is for you. Um, but actually, from the ages of five up to around 10 or 11, children are forming standards, morals, goals, and convictions. And at this age, they are thrust into an immoral, atheistic world where the values of a godly life and mind are completely at odds with it. And so they're swimming in a polluted pool, and we wonder how they become spiritually and socially so sick. They begin to conform themselves to their classmates. They learn how life works, but not from the wise mouth of their parents, but from the foolish lips of fellow classmates. And it's at this critical stage in life that we pass them off into a godless system, all with this quaint idea that if we pray for them, it will all be good. It's sort of like fathers who just kind of let their daughters decide who they're going to date and they'll just pray for them or their sons. And you're like, no, no, but that's for another podcast. Uh, Parents too often think that if they're in a solid church and the kids are in a good school and the parents show an interest in their children's lives, that everything will turn out fine. But it's not true. It's a lie that we're telling ourselves. We think that if the kids are in Sunday school, that they'll be fine. But we cannot find the time to teach our children in family worship. We think that spending half an hour or so a day after work in school with our kids will somehow magically reveal any issues of the heart that needs to be addressed, but it doesn't. I mean, I've asked parents who say, no, my, my child tells me if there's something going on. I'm like, did you, right. when you were in school right. and you had something happen to you, did you come home and tell your mom and dad, hey, I may, I've kept notes all day long and I've got several questions I'd like to talk to you about. No, you're not telling them squat. <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, it's it's shocking. I, I go back many, many years. I'm 59. And the things I knew about um, that I learned in junior high, um, now people would be like, man, I knew that at kindergarten or something. But it was like, and I'm not telling my mom and dad because I might get yelled at, even though I wouldn't have. I'm not, I'm not admitting to nothing. Right, they got to right. find out. Uh, So by the last years of school now, they're actually debating life and morals and goals, and they're forming long-term senses of purpose for themselves. And all of it's done in the realm of the enemy. It's not the parent building the deep convictions into the heart. It's instead their drama teacher or their English teacher or some coach. That's where they're getting their life goals and convictions from. Yeah, yeah. Well, premise number three, then, is that we try to believe truth can somehow be grasped apart from God. Um, 
but but he can't. Now, remember, these premises are what many parents are doing as they view education. We don't think these are good premises, but they're the premises that are oftentimes lurking in the minds of parents, and we've heard them say it in various ways. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, um, we believe truth can somehow be grasped apart from God. Um, and so we would just say, no, it can't. So Jesus said in John 17 that the source of truth is God's word. In John 8, he said that truth will make you free. In John 14, he describes himself as the truth. And so it's amazing that that parents cannot in agreement with that and then think that somehow their child is receiving a great education at their school. Uh, even many so-called Christian schools are devoid of this understanding. They, they teach the same things in the same way as the public schools, but what they do is they just add, you know, a 25-minute chapel. Uh, or That's maybe, usually poorly done. <laughs> right, uh, with terrible theology, yeah. Um, or maybe a basic Christian doctrine class or something like that. So what happens with this is that we train our children to create compartments in their minds and lives. So you, you have your religious life, but then you can have your public life and then your private life. Uh, the result is that kids grow up and become uh, pastors who teach that a six-day creation is really a well-meaning myth and that truth tells us that Genesis should be treated as an ancient Near East legend or myth. Yeah, yeah. What's actually written is the myth. I'm just like, no, we should, I mean, we are treated like small, silly, well-meaning children when we talk about how we take Genesis yeah. 1 and 2 to be literal. Yeah, we're, it, we're fundies. It, yeah, and it's like, oh my. And, <laughs> and it's like, that didn't come from the Bible. That came from an atheistic worldview, and we could get into that one day if we ever really yeah. want. It's kind of cool, but we could risk warning everybody about the whole uh, rise of uh, higher critics, critical thought and, yeah, yeah. and that. So, so now you, you have to make the Bible fit into that system yes. versus testing that system with the Bible. Right. Um, so so when those when those two worldviews collide, it is the religious one that must now make room in injustice. And and we see that over and over again. So so truth is truth and it is defined by Jesus in the Word of God. Um, it doesn't change just because someone says it's wrong or it's short sighted, but how many of our children are immersed in the task of knowing this truth? That's the question we would ask. When your school sets about to teach on ethics or history or social sciences, do they do so without God in the Bible? Um, well, every time. Um, so without these being the anchors and the guiding lights, they're left to find other standards, which amazingly seem to mirror their own fickle and sinful desires. Um, you know, the students or your student is taught overtly and covertly to use himself or the masses as the foundation of what is right and what is good. And so the public education system promotes ignoring God, and, and this is never good. Again, right now, if it's not overtly in your face, God is still, he's just not present. Right. He, he's, it's void of God. It's godless. Exactly. Or ungodly. Yeah. Um, so, so art becomes art for its own sake. Beauty is, is now in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, sexual ethics are a private affair into which others cannot speak. Um, in fact, even if you, you doubt us on that, then at the next PTA meeting, uh, just raise the question, what does God say about this? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, try, no. Try it. Just you try know. it and watch watch what happens. Yeah. Or, or ask, how is what you're saying right now fitting in with the scriptures? 
I mean, you, you wouldn't dare do that because you understand you're not on the grounds of the scripture. You're on the grounds of the worldly system. But uh, let me give them a helpful hint. Um, when you get tar and feathered, if you want to remove that tar, you want to use a lot of ice. Keep the tar cold and it can come off your skin. So because you will be tar and feathered at your next friendly PTA meeting. Anyhow. <laughs> Sounds like you got some experience here. <laughs> uh, yeah, but as a pastor, not as a, <laughs> um, So you disagree with us, right? Some of you are already driving off the road. You're, you're muttering under your breath. Uh, maybe you're... Um, having a panic attack or whatever, right? You're, you're not happy with us. What now? What, what are you going to do? Well, we would simply say, well, then you disagree with us. Uh, what we would simply then ask is why you disagree. What, what, that's what you should be asking yourself. Why is it that you disagree? And make sure you give it a lot of thought. You may argue that you went to public school and you did fine. We would challenge that. <laughs> the very fact that you're trying to defend it makes us wonder right away. But we would really question that by asking you if you really mean it. Because would you really say you walked out of school unscathed? Or has your life been a process of seeing how much junk actually is in your mind that you need to get rid of? And that's what we actually see is how much unbiblical thinking goes on in the minds of younger believers. Not They may be older, but they're young in their faith and they, they have no not idea how much garbage is there. Um, what's your views on abortion, euthanasia, economics, society, purpose of government, legal systems, prison and jails, police, use of force, capital punishment, art, music, entertainment, sexual issues, gender issues, private property, racism, education, and a whole host of other things. What view do you actually have? And, and the, we would wager that most of these have not really been developed out of a sound theology. But every one of these are under the sovereign hand of God in reality, and they are to be expressions of him and his character. Have you thought that way? I mean, I'll, I'll ask a simple question I asked on Sunday. Why do you make money? You know, what, what's the purpose of having that money? And why has God enriched you in whatever way he has? Have you ever thought about that? You all have opinions on these things, but too often they're developed in your time while at school, which is a smattering of Christianity tossed in, which is why a single girl will get pregnant while attending a Christian college and she and her boyfriend will then go get the baby aborted. Yet at the same time, they will still claim to be anti-abortion. And it happens far more than you understand. And be handed a graduation certificate oh, yeah. after it. Uh, they had an unbiblical understanding of relationships, but they also had an unbiblical understanding of sexualities, an unbiblical understanding of their gender roles as man and woman. They had an unbiblical understanding of reputation of sanctity of life and likely many more all of those are biblical ideas that they abandoned when they looked at each other and they desired one another in a sexual manner now some will also argue that private schooling is just far too expensive and so that's one of the main reasons well we would say perhaps um, but we would also wonder is it possible that you have bought into a godless worldview that says you need a bigger home with land and at least two cars that are newer and better? Is it possible that you have bought into the lie that you must go to a fancy college and do it while taking on school debt so that you can have spending money 
during college. Yeah, you that blew me away. I, I, I went through school with no debt. We raised our kids to do the same thing. Um, you told me that people take on student loans because they get more than they need. Explain that so they can spend it? Yeah, I mean, you, you take out the full amount. But why do you take out the full amount? Well, because you need the iMac Pro. And you also need the scooter. And you also need the, the bigger apartment. And so, so they'll take I out the no full idea that that at, happened at like 8% interest, you know, because they want all this other stuff. So it's not just meeting their basic bills. It's we want to get all the other stuff on top of it. It's why college students who don't work are able to buy $5 lattes at Starbucks while sitting in front of a MacBook Pro wearing fancy clothes and, again, have no job. I mean, it's bizarre. I didn't know that. See, I, that was my ignorance. I just, I don't know what I thought. <laughs> but you blew my mind when you explained that that's the reality. All I know is that as a pastor, I'll do like premarital. And I'll, when we get into money and stuff like that, I'll just say, so what kind of debt are you carrying? And I am stunned at the answer that some of the people, it's like, you're getting married and between the two of you have over a hundred grand and you still don't quite know what you want to do with life. Ooh. Anyhow, go ahead. Well, you know, just to continue this, you may believe that decorating your house all nice and making sure that you and your family are dressed in a way that reflects your fashion sense is important. Um, you don't believe in wasting your time in the kitchen, so you need to buy store-made products and eat out all the time. Uh, we would ask, what if instead you moved into a smaller home in a less fancy neighborhood? What if your cars were a little bit older and, and so on with, with other things? If you need to have two incomes to live, we would argue then likely you have made many choices that are not actually biblically sound choices. In other words, when you, when you play the I can't afford card, we would then offer to sit with you and help you find ways to cut back on things so that you could afford it. But what we discover is the reality is that few want that to happen. Uh, in America, we will do very hard things as long as they only appear hard and don't cut into our creature comforts. And that's brutally honest, folks. I'm, we're just telling you. You may argue, that, uh, here's another argument we hear, that you see the public school as your mission ground. Um, and we're, we're just going to shrug and be very unimpressed with that argument. The reason is simple. You cannot be truly evangelistic in the school system. Even if you did it on your free time, you know that you run the risk of getting into serious trouble. So you, as a parent, say, well, my ch children are in school and I want to be there at the school where they're uh, going and I want to be a light in a dark world. Isn't that swell? So what do you do when your son's teacher's a transvestite? What do you do when you hear him or her frame things in an ungodly manner? Do you stand silently by while the school introduces gay pride history lessons for pre-K through 12, which they're doing, where, where do you draw your line where you say, as a Christian, I have to declare that to be immoral, and I'm not just going to pull my son aside afterwards and say, don't listen to him. As Christians, we don't do that. And yeah, mom. And he's saying, yeah, mom, but he's still swimming day in and day out in that uh, pool of pollution. Is your child really so strong in their faith assuming they're even actually in Christ, that they can discern good and evil? Really? Real? I mean, are you really going to tell me that? Because we haven't met them yet. We have not met a yet a kid that is in a school system and their, their theology is so solid and their faith is so strong that, that it, it's just not what you get. 
I mean, we're not trying to be mean. We're just saying, hey, it's not there. You're not to use your children, beloved, as an evangelism tool. Instead, you're commanded to train, instruct, discipline, and lead your children into two things, a saving faith and a biblically solid worldview that makes them firm in their faith. Now, how is that done by giving them over to eight plus hours in a school system that is literally opposed to everything we just said? It's beyond us. Yeah. And when you understand that education is discipleship, you then understand that you're essentially turning your child over to be discipled yeah. by the government, Yeah. right? So, so you argue that next that you can't teach them because you're not good at teaching. Um, we would just simply respond by saying, well, then this is something that, that, that you should learn. Like everything else in life, you have to learn these skills. Most homeschool curriculum is extremely helpful in showing you how to teach, but it does require that you have an attitude that says you will learn and conquer that weakness. What really happens with many who try homeschooling is that they find out that they've done a really bad job in raising their children to obey the first time um, and show self-control and who are respectful. That's what it begins to reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when they tell them, do your math, and the kid has a meltdown, and they're like, I can't do this. Send them back to school. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the answer. Yeah. Um, add to this that many parents have never trained themselves to control their reactions and thought life. And so they're filled with anxiety that controls them and defines their decisions and ac actions. And, and the result is, is chaos. Um, but we would say it can be changed by a heart that repents before God. And repents is not just feeling bad about it. It means we, we need to go in a different direction. We need to begin then, like, like you said, I'm going to learn how to do this. And I'm going to show my children what it looks like to be a student because I'm, I need to become a student first. I need to learn how to teach this because Johnny needs to learn it. Um, but it, that's, that's what repentance looks like. So another argument, your children, you say, well, your children won't, or my children won't sit still and listen to me. Well, we would say that you've had the grace of God show you how poorly you've been parenting up to that point. Instead of seeing it as a problem, see it as God's kindness in your life to show you that there's some gaps in your parenting. So give thanks to God and then begin the process of repenting. Uh, work first on bringing your children under your control so that you can teach them. And beloved, we know it's a miserable task if you haven't been faithful to that, but it's only because you chose not to train them from the beginning. Um, one day we're going to do a whole series on just practical parenting advice, but don't what we're saying here is don't dump your disobedient child off on some teacher because you can't be bothered to teach him to sit still for a half hour. In fact, one of the things that Kim and I teach uh, young parents all the time here, they're like, I'm trying to teach, they, they're like in our church, we have homeschoolers and they're trying to teach their oldest child something, but they're always being interrupted by the younger one. Well, then teach them not to interrupt, teach them how to sit still. And the way um, Kim, my wife, would do it is we start out with an egg timer in five minutes and we tell our children, get up on the couch, get a book and sit still. You're not to play, you're not to wiggle and you're not to get off and you're not to talk to each other. Be quiet for five minutes. A lot of disciplines occurred. Kim accepted the fact that dishes wouldn't be done, laundry wasn't going to get done, nothing was going to get done because she had uh, this little child of five who was not going to sit still. Um, or three, actually, we started very young too. Um, and 
until they've sat still for five minutes properly, they're not allowed off that couch. And you say, I'll never get anything done. Yes, you will. You'll get what's important done. You'll get the training of your child done. Everything else doesn't matter. As they, once they got the five minutes, add another five minutes. And pretty soon you'll be amazed that your child will be taught that when you say go, it's time to go read. They get up on the couch, they do their reading and they're quiet for a half hour, hour. Um, It's not hard. It's just, it takes you having a plan and you just slowly begin to train it. But if you are stepping in at age 11 (laughs) and your kid hasn't ever learned to sit still, um, yeah, it's going to be a long, hard fight until they realize mom and dad are really serious about this. I, I guess I better learn to sit still, um, because at some point in their life, they have to learn to sit still. So why don't you start young when it's easy? So you have control over them with the goal that now I can instruct them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So in all of this, though, we also understand that there are challenges with this and there are challenges that the church must face when talking about these things. So over the last few decades, a new challenge has grown in the church to the point that it is, it's simply uh, accepted without much thought. And that is the idea that we, you know, we're speaking of single parents here. Um, Now, it used to be rare that if single parenthood existed, there were extenuating circumstances, you know, things like war, disease, things like that. To be sure, there were single parents, usually single mothers, but they were so rare that they would stand out. Now, in many schools, there's a daycare for children of single mothers so they can attend high school, and that's just normal. Um, But when you start to speak about educating your own children, uh, you know, either via homeschool or through a truly Christian private school, you do create challenges. Yeah, we know that. We're we're not oblivious to it. Yeah, so how how can a single mother work and teach her child. She can't. Um, you know, in, unless the mother has a very good paying job, the cost of private schooling is, that's just not gonna be an option for no. her either. So what we think, we think the church needs to give careful thought to helping support those kinds of women or men in these unique situations. If the parent is willing, then perhaps having another parent in the church bring their child into their homeschooling environment would be a very good thing. A lot would need to be worked out in that kind of situation, but it would be a beginning. Right, right. The, the church could start perhaps a fund that helps offset the cost of private schooling is another example. The church could promote legislation that allows for vouchers to be used for private education. Uh, or the church could start a private school itself. Which is what we're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, we're trying to do that. Um, so again, th- these take time, but we would say that they're all worth pursuing. The problem with single parenthood should be a single generation problem for the family um now think about this think about what he's saying this is important and and you need to think through it so yeah so so if if the child in that single parent home is raised to see the wisdom and necessity of a husband wife home then the cycle there become is broken but this requires a holistic approach that begins and ends with a god-centered home in life Uh, In other words, as a rule, Christian homes should not be producing single-parent homes. That should not be the norm. Uh, Those primarily should be coming from those who are not saved or outside of the visible church. Well, no, no, that's those who, the kind of families we should be seeing as single-parent homes should be somebody who just recently got saved. So they they were raised in a non-Christian. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Um, so, so yeah, so they, I mean, they, they were just raised in an unbelieving home. You know, they had a boyfriend, got pregnant. Now they came to Christ. And now and, they come to Christ and they're in your church. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's where it, we shouldn't be seeing it from a, a Christian home where mom and dad love Christ and somehow their daughters are producing children without a husband. Yeah. Yeah. But as they're cared for and taught by the church, they should radically change how their home functions in every yeah. way. Yeah. And so the, the result then should be a generation of children raised to be godly men and women. So that means you also welcome in a single parent, right? Who Absolutely, comes, yeah. comes to faith and you understand that you rejoice that God saved them, but you, then you begin to train them and help them. And that's why uh, a Christian home that's maybe homeschooling, they say, look, we can, we can, it's just one more kid and we, <laughs> right. we've got five already. It's not a difficulty to have him come in and, and learn alongside my son and, if you'd let me do that, um, that that's a way you can care and minister to. So just keep that in mind is that single parent in the church should be a single generation problem. It should end simply be uh, by the fact that now a radically different type of home is produced because of Christ, right? So we would also say that the church has to learn to preach a full-orbed biblical model of the Christian faith. And, and what we mean by this is not merely good sermons that are expositional. We love expositional preaching. We, we know of many churches uh, around, not necessarily in our city, but we know of many ch churches that preach expositionally and are sound in that way. But there's some kind of a disconnect between what's preached from the pulpit and then what goes on in the life of the church. What's being produced, yeah. Um, I think that's probably one of the things that people get surprised when they start coming to our church, they first come and they're like, wow, we love the preaching. And, and then at some point they find out we're actually serious and we expect you to obey what we preach. That if that's what the scripture says, then your life needs to conform to that. And that's where some of them leave because they're like, hey, hey, you're, you're sticking your nose where nobody asked you to. But the word of God sticks its nose into every one of those parts. So the, the expectation is that households in attendance are learning to put into practice the very things that the pulpit is preaching. What happens, though, is too many times you end up with a good preacher at a church, but alongside his sermons are classes on the Enneagram, right? Or love languages or psychological approaches to anger, bitterness, lusts, and such. And the classes and the small groups are Petri dishes of every godless idea and the question is not asked how the sermon, and more importantly, the biblical text actually addresses those things. They're just divorced from each other because what we said earlier in the podcast, we've created this two-realm existence. We have our religious life and then everything else. So these are probably the two biggest challenges uh, that we see. We know others exist, but we think we've said enough by now to stir your minds to think. So let's bring this to a close. All we would ask is that you would give careful thought to what we've said. Don't chuck it out the window in a fit of emotion. And if you ultimately don't agree, then that's your choice. And we would, we would say that. That's your choice. But we'd also tell you that the fruit of your choices will become evident in time. And that's the thing that I think breaks my heart most with child rearing is you don't have to take the counsel. But don't come back to me when they're in high school and you say, can you fix this shattered life? And it's like, I, I, I can't fix that. Christ may fix it, but I, I can't. You, these were choices you made 12 years ago um, 
by introducing this into your home or choosing this career path or choosing that or whatever. Um, just understand that you have the freedom in Christ to make these decisions. And as you make them, they're yours to make. You don't have to agree with us, um, but you also have to then take on the consequences. Yeah, and so, so we, wouldn't, we wouldn't say that, like we don't have a Bible verse for, for that, but we would say this entire thing falls into that category of wisdom. Yeah. Right? So I know the response by some will be, well, you know, there's no explicit Bible verse against that. You're correct. But there's also this thing called the Proverbs and wisdom and that you train a child generally in the way that they should go and they'll fear the Lord. But we ought not to be surprised yeah. if we don't and huh. then the child doesn't. Or how about this one? Uh, the, the wise man sees evil approaching and avoids it. I mean, that's not just a guy with a gun approaching you down the alleyway. That's an entire system of education that for the next 12 years, your children will be swimming in that's overtly opposed to everything you say you believe. So think about it. Um, until then, though, we would ask that you continue to tune in. We would like you to join this conversation. If you're just going to write, though, and rail on us, you know, you can. We may just read it uh, for fun's sake. But if, if you have genuine concerns or questions or challenges, go ahead. We'd love to hear. We really would love to hear your thoughts on education as Christian discipleship. Uh, but we also ask, as we always ask, give us a five-star rating. It helps us a lot. Leave a review at iTunes. Also connect with us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And always, as always, tell a friend.